3: That's chumbacasino.com.
2: No purchase necessary. BTW, avoid prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus.
3: I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC, wherever you listen to podcasts.
4: On this episode of Newt's World, my guest today is Professor Amy Wax. She is currently the Robert Mundheim Professor of Law at the University of Pennsylvania Carey Law School. She joined the law school's faculty with tenure on July 2001 and was granted a chair in May 2007. As an assistant to the Solicitor General in the Office of the Solicitor General at the U.S. Department of Justice in the late 1980s and early 1990s, she argued 15 cases before the U.S. Supreme Court. She holds both a medical degree in neuroscience from Harvard Medical School and a law degree from Columbia. And she's here today to talk about issues including the freedom of speech on college campuses. So I'm really pleased to welcome my guest, Professor Amy Wax. Amy, welcome, and thank you for joining me on Newt's World.
5: Well, thank you for having me.
4: Now, I have to say, looking at your education and career history, I was intrigued that you first earned a medical degree in neuroscience from Harvard Medical School, then Immediately went to law school, first at Harvard, and then you transferred to Columbia. Was that always your plan?
5: No, it kind of evolved over time. I went to medical school, but then I realized I was probably temperamentally unsuited to the practice of medicine and tried law school. I was thinking of doing a philosophy degree actually, and after I got to law school I realized that I really loved the law and was going to enjoy the practice of law, so I did gradually turn from medicine to law, finished my law degree, did a clerkship, and ended up in a wonderful position working for the Reagan and Bush administrations in the Solicitor General's office. And that was a terrific experience, which confirmed me in my enjoyment of law. And then I ended up in an academic career teaching at the University of Virginia Law School for seven years before I came to Penn in 2001. So, my life took me in an unexpected direction. But I am married to a professor of medicine, my husband, who's an oncologist. So, I do function as a doctor's wife, sort of vicariously.
4: It's interesting because you actually started and got a Bachelor of Science, summa cum laude, in molecular biophysics and biochemistry at Yale. Then you were cum laude at Harvard in the medical school. And then you got a J.D. from Columbia. That's really a pretty impressive academic record.
5: Well, thank you. (laughs) It was a long time ago.
4: Well, that happens to all of us. And in the absence of death, it's eventually a long time ago. I'm curious. I mean, it's really a big jump psychologically from thinking like a molecular biologist to thinking like a lawyer. In your own experiences, how did you find the transition?
5: Well, not really, and not the way that I approach the law anyway, which is in a rigorous evidence-based analytical way, which asks hard questions, tries to look at them rationally and logically, tries to attend to the evidence, the facts, emphasize proof, And the methodologies really aren't all that different, although the questions being addressed are different in many cases. It's really a matter of intellectual habits of mind. One brings very similar habits to both endeavors, I would hope, at least ideally so. Nowadays, less and less because of the way the culture has gone, unfortunately. But I think in the best possible worlds, they're not too far apart. And how people approach them.
4: And is that because they're both analytical?
5: Yeah, they're both analytical. They both involve logic and evidence and reason and rigor from premises, from facts, and a sense of where the evidence takes you and how certain you can be about your conclusions. I mean, that enters into both areas, I think, as it should into any intellectual endeavor.
4: So you went from practicing law to being a professor teaching law. What led to that transition?
5: When you practice, people bring problems to you, legal problems to you, and you are constrained to work on them. And that can be a lot of fun, and I enjoyed that. Certainly I enjoyed it in the Justice Department, where we got to work on some very important and interesting questions at the highest level, certainly the Solicitor General's Office, was an idyllic setting where the best and the brightest operated. But I was attracted to academia because it let me work on questions and issues that interested me. It gave me the freedom to do that. And that's quite a privilege. And I also really enjoy teaching. I enjoy introducing students to the fundamentals of law, to important legal concepts, trying to shape the way they think about the law and influence how they approach and think about the law. And I find that very satisfying. So that was a lot of fun for me, too.
4: So you first became a professor at the University of Virginia. What was Virginia like as a campus?
5: Oh, it was great. I mean, that was back in 1994 when I first got there, left the Justice Department And UVA, well, first of all, it was a totally different era. I think academia and the universities have gone seriously downhill since then, and that's been a major crisis in the intellectual life of our nation and something I'd like to talk more about. But back in 1994 at UVA, it was a wonderful atmosphere of openness to different ideas, unpopular opinions, and were welcome. There was a give and take. There was academic freedom. There was respect for dissent and difference. And I think UVA, of all the law schools even operating at that time, was one of the very best for that kind of atmosphere. So I felt very fortunate to end up at UVA, especially since even then there was a leftward tilt in academia and I, being a person of the right, was even a little bit of fish out of water, but I never felt that I was unwelcome or ill-treated at UVA. It really was an idyllic period, certainly in my intellectual life.
4: And do you think that, as you talk to people back there, do you think that UVA has followed the pattern of moving towards a more woke environment?
5: Yes, I do. I think it's been a little bit slower in getting there maybe than some other places, but I think it's very firmly in that camp now, It's as far as I know from what I hear. And of course, I haven't been there, so I don't have any direct experience. So this is just what people tell me. But my understanding is that, yeah, UVA has just gone the way of all the other top schools and top law schools.
4: But in the interim, you've now spent 20 years at the University of Pennsylvania.
5: That's correct. 20 years, going on 21.
4: And was it substantially more open back when you first went there?
5: It was more open when I first got there, yes, absolutely. And it was more open in the faculty, certainly, and their willingness to engage different ideas and different concepts and unpopular opinions. And I think the really critical thing was that the students were much more willing to do that. And their tendencies towards intolerance and towards sort of taking the easy path of saying, well, I don't like this person's opinions, get rid of them, fire them. Those tendencies were squelched. No one paid attention to them the people in authority stood up to the students and said, no, that's antithetical to academic freedom, and it's terrible for your education because you are training to be a lawyer. A lawyer has to operate in an adversary system where they hear all sorts of untoward views and positions and opinions that they don't agree with, and they have to engage with those. So back when I started at Penn, there was a very clear and firm understanding of the necessity for confronting and engaging a range of views and positions. And that understanding has now virtually disappeared, I would say. It has virtually disappeared in a few short years.
4: And if I'm hearing you correctly, though, it's as much student-driven as faculty-driven.
5: Yes, I think it's student-driven. It's partly faculty-driven, at least through kind of faculty cowardice and indifference and acquiescence in the zeitgeist. But what really drives it is just a failure of leadership, an unwillingness of the people in charge to stand up and defend these traditional, important core values. And then the other piece of it, Newt, is that the universities have put in place these massive grievance bureaucracies that are in charge of receiving complaints from students and everyone involved. That's all they do. They sort of sit around in their office drinking coffee, waiting for people to come and whine at them. And you know, then they're charged with sort of going out and reviewing the supposed offenders, the ones who have upset someone or offended someone or said something untoward. And that's all part of this sort of diversity, equity, and inclusion monstrous initiative and bureaucracy that has practically taken over the university at this point, driven by cultural changes, by racial reckonings, and by federal initiatives, the Department of Education, which is really, I think, the villain here, and all of the sort of funding-driven requirements and mandates that have given these bureaucrats so much power.
1: or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play.
2: From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast
4: is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This
2: is Uncanny USA.
5: He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed... (laughs)
2: Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare.
4: It's very striking just in terms of the culture at large on the academic campus. There was a survey in July by the Harvard Crimson that liberal faculty at Harvard outnumbered conservatives 82 to 1? Right. That's less than 2% of the faculty identify as conservative. Uh, Yale, a 2017 study found 75% of the faculty members were liberal or very liberal. 7% were out conservative. I'm not sure what the term student-facing administrators is, but there was a survey of some 900 of them. Liberal staff members outnumbered conservatives By 12 to 1, only 6% of campus administrators identified as conservative, 71% classified as liberal or very liberal. In that context, you're almost guaranteed to start out every morning in a world of hostility.
5: Exactly. And I mean, this has been long in the making, Newt. I mean, the faculty, academia has always tilted somewhat left, and it's just become more and more left-leaning to the point where it's almost impossible to find someone with traditional and conservative views in the university. Now, there was a period when, even though the faculty was very left-leaning, they did feel an obligation to at least try to be impartial and present issues in an even-handed way. I mean, when I was at Yale in the early 70s, I never felt that there was a pronounced political tilt to the ideas that were being presented to me, even though I'm pretty sure that my professors, there weren't a lot of conservatives among them. But even that obligation has now just died. And there is just this overt, unabashed presentation of issues that is completely one-sided. I mean, there is a pronounced imbalance in the way that ideas and issues and subjects are presented in the university and at colleges, and nobody apologizes for it. It really tells in the kind of education that students are getting, and it's a national crisis. I have students who take my conservatism, conservative thought class, which is you know really kind of a unique class in a way, I'm amazed that it survives, who tell me, I have never encountered these ideas. This is in law school. They've already had 16 plus years of hyper expensive education. And they tell me, I just have never Encountered these authors before. I've never heard these ideas before. You've opened up a whole new world to me that I never even knew existed. And I can only look at them and say, you know, I am so sorry because you have spent all this money to, in effect, be indoctrinated with this little niche, let's use the word extreme, point of view. There is this pronounced imbalance in the way issues are presented. There is affirmative indoctrination in neo-Marxist ideas, left-leaning ideas, and that is very alarming. The conservatives and Republicans in this nation need to wake up and realize what is going on in the universities and how that is being exported to politics, to culture, to moral thinking, and works to the disadvantage of traditional conservative ideas. The mismatch between what goes on in the universities and the population at large is so great, and it is very destructive. Our elites are being pushed to the left by self appointed elite arbiters. And that, to me, is a crisis.
4: So as that developed as a general pattern, how did you slide into trouble?
5: I slid into trouble by expressing some unpopular positions and opinions on political and cultural and moral questions. And a group of activist students, social justice warriors, very vocal and aggressive students, complained about it using social media, which, of course, is an accelerant of any sort of grievance or complaint. And people outside the university picked up these themes. They complained vociferously to my dean. And instead of my dean doing what he should have done, which he had a duty to do as a leader in higher education, which is to say to them, look, that's what academic freedom entails. Professors will have a range of opinions that is really important to your education as well. If you don't like them, then try to think of counter arguments or try to go and talk to the professor and convince her otherwise. Instead of doing that, he engaged in an outrageous exercise of educational malpractice and decided to give in to these grievance mongers. And promised them that he would try to sanction me and punish me for, essentially, my opinions. And this, of course, is completely contrary to my tenure contract, completely contrary to much articulated principles of academic freedom. But he didn't care because, and Newt, this is another baleful trend, the students call the shots. This is a complete inversion of the proper order of things. The most untutored, benighted and ignorant members of the university community, the students who are there to be educated, I'm not saying anything surprising here, they're the ones in charge. It's a complete topsy-turvy inverted world. So that is what's happening on campus, and I think the effort to sanction me and perhaps even strip me of my job, I don't know what they're really intending, that is emblematic of a host of changes that are taking place on campus. And the point of them is to consolidate the left, far left hold on the university and drive out anyone who is not with the program. It is a bold and brazen attempt to effect a complete takeover of the academic sphere by the far left, people who represent a tiny, tiny slice of opinion in our nation and consolidate their power center. I am just, you know, a casualty of, or a potential casualty of that effort, which has been going on all around the country.
4: So, I have to confess, I get lost in some of this. I know at one point that the Daily Pennsylvanian had something signed by 54 students and alumni which attacked the ideas that you and Alexander had written in a piece. And they talk about that they're steeped in anti-blackness and in white, heteropatriarchal respectability. Now, I think I'm lacking... A uh, full understanding of the modern world because I have not got a clue what a hetero patriarchal respectability is or why it's a horrifying concept. What am I missing here?
5: I'm not going to be able to explain it to you because I think it's total gibberish, okay? I mean, one of the hallmarks of the criticisms and critiques against me is that they use all of this jargon, which is just cheap talk, all sorts of labels and accusations and terms that are never defined, that are never nailed down, that are never tied to any rules or obligations. They're just insults. They're pure insults. They're vacuous insults. But underlying them is an effort to dismantle and destroy, well, I'll put it this way, Western civilization, right? all of the achievements, the traditions, accomplishments of our European Western way of life, which is hated by the left, is despised by the left, and is viewed as irredeemably racist and evil and destructive and oppressive. So bourgeois values, which of course are the mainstays of decent life and of our communal life, they are seen as core to what is most despicable in our traditions and civilization and has to be banished and destroyed. That's the best way I can explain it because I just find it utterly mystifying. I certainly don't share that view. But once again, it's effectuated through this kind of mindless, idiotic, accusatory name calling, which never has to explain itself, justify itself, define itself, because it's part and parcel of the university and the way it operates that, you know, nobody ever puts these students' feet to the fire and challenges them. If they are activists or minorities or marginal groups, they just get away with anything
4: In the piece you wrote, I'm fascinated by it because you say, quote, all cultures are not equal, or at least they are not equal in preparing people to be productive in an advanced economy. Now, I would argue as a historian, that is so patently obvious and so completely true that the fact that these people become hysterical tells you a lot more about the people than about the sentence,
5: Well, the fact that it's obvious and plain for anyone to see that not all cultures are equal, they're not all equal in their achievements, in their suitability for modern technology and modern technological societies, for democracy, for freedom, for rights, the fact that not all cultures respect those things and defend those things equally. I mean, I just think it is so obvious that the more obvious it is, the more threatening it is.
4: And it seemed to create almost a sense of rage that you would write that.
5: Right. I mean, noticing, as you know, is a crime. Noticing, you know, what's in front of your eyes is now a crime. And it all goes back to this idea of equality, this commitment to sort of the hyper-equality of everything, which obviously, you know, is counterfactual. We're committed in our society to legal equality to political equality. But it's only recently that that's been extended to equality of outcome and equality of results and equality of value and equality of contribution, equality of esteem. I mean, that wasn't really part of the deal. And now all of a sudden it's mandatory. Even when the evidence points directly in the opposite direction. (laughs) That's what's going on. I'll add one thing, which is Theodore Dalrymple, the conservative writer, said something very interesting. He said one of the ways in which neo Marxist social justice totalitarians exert control is by humiliating people into admitting that something or professing that something is true, which they know not to be true, forcing them to say, Things that they know to be false. That is the ultimate exertion of power that these people revel in.
0: There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time.
1: Mo Play.
4: Clist and I did a movie called Nine Days to Change the World, which was a study of Pope John Paul II's return to Poland in 1979, which was an enormous success and was the beginning of the collapse of the Soviet Empire in Eastern Europe. And while we were there, the Solidarity Union, which had been one of the leaders in bringing down the Soviets in Poland, gave me a poster, which I have on my wall, which they had made back in 1981. It says in Polish, for Poland to remain Poland, two plus two must always equal four. And it's a direct repudiation, of course, of the George Orwell point in 1984, where the torturer says to the citizen, if the state tells you two plus two equals three, it equals three. And if the state tells you two plus two equals five, it equals five. And in a sense, that's what you're describing, that the totalitarians who now dominate our campuses, and that's what they are. They're the direct descendant of the Bolsheviks. They're the direct descendant of the radical wing of the French Revolution. And they're the direct descendant of Mao Zedong, who was himself a Leninist. I don't want to get off into politics, but I just saw today the naming of a brand new bill with a title so totally false that it would take a totalitarian system to make you believe it was true. And I think that's now become their norm, that the world is what they say it is. Our job is to shut up and do what they tell us.
5: Well, exactly. And I think in the university now, it's a two plus two equal five world or else. Or else you're fired or you won't be hired or you won't be promoted or you won't be recommended. Actually, it's interesting because there are just dozens of bizarre allegations against me, many of which are false, by the way. But there are two that illustrate this point really well. Not only do we have to say two plus two equals five, but we have to profess overtly contradictory concepts and inconsistent concepts. So, of course, you know that on the modern campus, affirmative action is a sacred item of faith. All good people support affirmative action. It's absolutely essential for bringing about diversity. And if we didn't have it, we wouldn't have enough minorities on campus. And actually, if you look at the Harvard Affirmative action case, the briefs, they basically say that we must have affirmative action. But then I'm accused of insulting and humiliating a student by telling that student, you know, you were a person who benefited from affirmative action and getting into your Ivy League college and getting into Penn Law School. And that's somehow an affront, an insult. Well, why? I mean, first of all, it's almost certainly true based on the statistics. Secondly, I thought affirmative action was something to be celebrated. It's something wonderful. It's something to be embraced. So how can it be an insult at the same time? I'm supposed to wrap my head around these two sort of simultaneously contradictory concepts, and yet I must. The second thing is I'm accused of bias against minority students. They could reasonably believe that I'm biased because I said minority students aren't evenly distributed through the class in terms of their grades, which has been shown over and over again in a number of different law schools. But they never take into account that we have blind grading at Penn Law School. Blind grading is supposed to eliminate the possibility of bias. So it is irrational for the students to infer that I am showing bias or that they have a reasonable fear that I will be biased in grading them because we have a system that eliminates the possibility of bias. But the students are never corrected in their irrational fear. The dean never says, well, you have to understand your fear has no basis. There's no evidence that she's ever been biased in the way she grades you. And she couldn't be. Because we have this system where she doesn't know who she's assigning grades to. So these are just examples of completely incoherent statements.
4: Well, can you explain, though, one of the most jarring attacks on you is the assertion that on the Glenn show you said, I'm quoting, I don't think I've ever seen a black student graduate in the top quarter of the class and rarely, rarely in the top half.
5: Right. And I was going by my observations on the clerkship committee where I see lists of class rank, and those lists do exist, and they are made, and what I've seen at graduation. And I was only reporting what I had seen, so perhaps what I've seen is inaccurate. But I will tell you this. I taught civil procedure for 20 years, and I know because after I graded them and assigned the grades— those grades were unblinded. And I see who got what grades. And I can tell you with a hundred percent certainty, okay, a hundred percent certainty that in 20 years, I have only had a handful of black students in the top half of my class in civil procedure. And that's just something that I observed. And there I'm in a position to observe it. And they have never adduced any evidence to contradict it, never. They don't even feel an obligation to do that. So that's just a fact. And it comports with what's been shown at other law schools, UCLA law school, data reported in various briefs before the Supreme Court. There's nothing surprising about this. new. It's just the way things are when you have affirmative action, where you have double standards for people from different groups. It's what you would expect.
4: I was sort of surprised that in June of this year, Dean Rudger wrote you a letter, which is kind of amazing, in which he accuses you of, quote, your intentional and incessant racist, sexist, xenophobic, and homophobic actions and statements. I mean, that's sort of throwing the book emotionally. What is it based on?
5: That's just name-calling. It's just name-calling. I'm not going to bore you with the particular statements that supposedly display by racism, sexism, etc., because many of them are just ridiculous. They're picky beyond belief, and it's not based on anything, right? It's just not based on anything at all. He never defines those terms. What makes... A statement racist, what makes it white supremacist, what makes it homophobic, feels no obligation to explain that. I mean, the charge of homophobia is based on critiques I made of same-sex marriage before same-sex marriage was legalized on a panel in which I was invited to present the case against legalizing same-sex marriage. That's an academic exercise. Fifteen years later, someone takes that as a personal insult. That's absurd. If you know the actual facts, it's ridiculous and very dangerous.
4: It's the kitchen sink theory. Just throwing everything at you and hope something sticks.
5: Yes, and actually the first complaints against me were just based on my political opinions. Now I think they're panicking because they know that tenure protects my extramural expressions of political opinion. Now they're insinuating that I said things in the classroom without telling me what class I said them in, what course it was, what the lesson was that I was presenting, what the topic was under discussion, who the witnesses were, no information whatsoever, just these sort of fragments of recollections of students from eight years ago, 10 years ago, 12 years ago. I think they're just panicking and trying to get me on abusing my classroom, which I have never done. I have never said much of what they have attributed to me. They are desperate.
4: As defined by the current dominant left on the campuses, you're clearly a conservative. Did you grow up that way or did you migrate towards it?
5: Well, I don't think my opinions have changed. I've always viewed things pretty much the way I see them now. It's just that now they're considered conservative. Back when I was growing up, this stuff was considered common sense. A lot of the opinions I have, I heard around the dinner table at my home. My parents were political moderates. My mother was a registered Democrat. I think what used to be regarded as, and is still, here's the thing, it's still regarded as mainstream, common-sense, moderate opinion in the real world, among real people, and of course discussed in people's living rooms and around dinner tables all the time, is now regarded as unacceptable in the university. The university sees these opinions as ultra-right, conservative, extreme views, so it's only in the distorted world of academia that positions and beliefs like mine are considered extraordinary.
4: You know, a fight on this scale against an institution the size of In Pennsylvania must be very expensive. You've gone to go fund me, and we're going to post that on our show page.
5: Yes, that's true. If people want to contribute, I'd be very grateful.
4: We will post that on our show page so that people can have easy access to offer you help because, you know, you're taking on a huge system and a big bureaucracy and a university that has very deep pockets to persecute people.
5: Absolutely. I'm learning that the hard way.
4: I want to thank you for your courage and your refusal to back down because sometimes that's the way history gets made. Somebody just has the courage to stand there and say no. And I really appreciate it. I want you to know that I'm very impressed with your calmness and the fact that you're willing to defend common sense, even if it is uncommon in the strange world you find yourself in.
5: Well, you know, we owe it to our young people, the people coming up behind us to stand up for what's right. And I keep that in mind all the time, the young people coming after us. That's why we need to stand up to this insanity.
4: I agree. I want to thank you very, very much, and I hope that everything is going to work out. And I have a hunch it probably will.
5: Thank you. Thank you for having me on.
4: Thank you to my guest, Professor Amy Wax. You can get a link to donate to our legal defense fund on our show page at newsworld.com. Newsworld is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Garnsey Sloan. Our producer is Rebecca Howell. And our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at Gingrich360.com newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World.
0: work.